I have to tell the people about the Patreon. Yes, you do. Patreon.com slash SMDB. SMDB, like so many damn books. For just a dollar, you can join up and you get access to all the exclusive content that I record just for the Patreon. Also, you get to join the book club. The So Many Damn Books book club. It's been some of the best conversations I've had about books. It really always sounds like a blast. I usually like come home and just hear like giggles coming from the library. So it's a great time. You should join. And I would love to have more people join the fray. You may or may not know that Christopher runs this whole show himself on the hosting side, on the technical side, everything. This is a one-man show, truly. He does it all. Support your boy Christopher. Even at the dollar level really helps. So uh, join up patreon.com slash smdb i'd love to have you patreon.com slash smdb on with the show i would um i'd eat that chip but i i i've eaten all the weird chips yeah you'll clearly eat anything so um the the reuben the reuben flavored reuben sandwich flavored oh my god that was really good wow it's just like a lot of that's a lot of tastes to get into a potato chip. It smelled terrible. <laughs> so gross smelling. So many, so many, so many damn books. Uh, welcome to So Many Damn Books. I'm Christopher. I'm Drew. And we have um, Elif Bodeman. Hello. Uh, in the <laughs> damn library with us today. Welcome, Elif. You are, as you remember, probably... Um, you've written for Harper's and N Plus One and The New Yorker, and you've also uh, written The Possessed Adventures with Russians, Russian Books and the People Who Read Them. I remember and, all those things, yeah. <laughs> okay, good. And um, you also uh, have written the book that you came to talk about today, The Idiot. Yeah. Um, and thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. I'm excited to be in the damn library. Yeah. Glad. <laughs> What, uh, oh, I gotta talk about this drink I made, I guess. This drink, this drink you made. You've outdone yourself. Oh, thank you. Uh, so I decided to take the, um, method that I tried last episode. Um, or episode before last of cold infusing, which is really just fancy saying I put tea into vodka and then put it in the fridge, um, <laughs> uh, and then uh, and then filtered it out. And it's uh, something really great to do. Um, I really really recommend you doing it. it. It makes it so that it doesn't water down the drink. You still get a tea flavor, and you don't have to add sugar, which is how I've been doing tea flavoring in cocktails before. Is I've uh, infused simple syrup. Yeah, and you can just skip the sugar. As nice. is good for you because sugar's bad for you, I've heard. Yeah. You heard this? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, and so this was an Amaro tea from, um, you gave this Smith to me. Smith Tea Makers in Portland. Yeah, they had it as one of their uh, limited run maker series. And they actually just brought it back because the demand was so high because people love it. Um, and so so you get the, that tea and you infuse it into vodka. And then I added um, my other favorite thing right now, which is Kochi Americano. Um, and uh, orange bitters, and I shook that with ice and poured it over a big ice cube, and I call it the uh, the dissertation. Uh, nice, because when you finish drinking it, you feel like you've accomplished something. <laughs> you don't like that. It's just it's so cheesy that it works. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, yeah. Like I want to see the little TM, and it's inspired the it. by the idiot, which. Um, which I was thinking of it and trying to come up with flavors for the book, but oh, I thought it was gonna be—I thought it was gonna be inspired by Proust. Oh no, no. Oh, that's cool. Um, yeah. Oh, I'm honored that that the idiot inspired this. Oh, I'm glad. <laughs> I I'm thought glad. it was an allusion to the lime blossom tea. Oh no, I was thinking an allusion to the bitterness of life. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Why don't we go to what did you buy? Sure. Drew, what did you buy? I picked up 
uh, Tracy Chevalier's New Boy, which is her entry in the Hogarth Shakespeare series. Okay, so that one's based um, on... Othello. Ah. It's set in the 70s, Washington, D.C. Over the course of a day, it's a bunch of sixth graders over the course of their school day. Um, oh, wow. Moving into sixth grade, that's a good idea. Yeah, it's like right at the moment where... where Childhood's over. Puberty things are starting to happen. Everybody's very confused. I just started it this morning. I'm curious to see where it goes. I love the sh- the series. I like this book so far. I have to say I'm a little disappointed that they they have a white lady writing the Othello novel. Mm. That's too bad. Mm. But benefit of the doubt, yeah. it's going well so far. Would you like to talk about what you bought next? Um. Sure. Uh, late last night, I ordered on Kindle. Um, I know that's wrong, but I, I did. It's uh, the Time Regulation Institute, which is a Ooh. Turkish novel by Ahmet Ta- Hamdi Tanpınar, which actually I had a copy that, that someone sent me and I don't know what happened to it. But I was writing about um, nationalism and the novel. I was writing this like essay that's just not finishing. And uh, I was talking about how Benedict Anderson said that the the reason that nationalism, that nation state and the novel arose at the same time is that people needed the novel to help them like assimilate the brain exploding idea of living in a nation state. And uh, he had various ideas about how this happened. It, it let people understand the simultaneity of time. And uh, then I was I was writing about Turkey and how um, Russian nationalism had all of these internal tensions and this belatedness and it led to this great novel tradition and why didn't Turkey and then I was like well in Turkey everything happened much later and then I remembered this novel which is about this guy who works for a fictional um, institute that synchronizes everyone's clocks and it gives you a fine if if your clock or your watch is out of sync with, depending on how many other clocks are around you at that moment, um, the the fine gets higher. Um, So that's the premise of the book. Uh, I just got it last night, so I haven't read that much of it. But it does seem designed to create this uh, simultaneity of national time. That's what Benedict Anderson was talking about. So I'm stoked about that. Yeah, that's that sounds so cool. Sounds really sounds interesting. Cool, right? There's an amazing passage where he talks about how true synchronicity and time is impossible. So all you have to do is walk through a busy neighborhood and just rake in the money because like everything's <laughs> a little bit off. And then he charges differently if you're fast or if you're slow. Oh wow! Wow. That's kind of based on how Ataturk had a reform in the 1920s. That was um, he adopted the Gregorian calendar and the 24-hour clock. So before that, time was based more on sunrise and sunset and the call to prayer. Um, wow. Yeah. I love that idea of the novel and the nation state, that connection too. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to be thinking about that for a while. Christopher? Um, I um, We were sent uh, for the show um, from um, McDee, I guess. Uh, Robin Sloan's new novel, Sourdough. And oh, cool. um, I totally flipped out for... Um, Mr. Penumbra's 24-hour bookstore. Um, and I have been so looking forward to another novel from Robin Sloan. And then I got one in the mail randomly. I wasn't even expecting it. And it's just like magic is happening. Yeah. That's um, wonderful. That's that feels so cool. very Robin Sloan-y too. And I don't know anything about this book. I haven't like looked it up or, or even read the back of it. I'm going to just try to jump right in. I know it has a nice sky blue cover. With a loaf of sourdough. See, I didn't even... Uh, you're it's no. <laughs> Speaking of books that I went into blind, yeah, I went into the idiot blind. Oh, you did? Yeah. Um, your book is incredible. I loved it. Oh, um, thank you. I fell for it immediately. But do you want to tell our listeners what it's about before we start talking about? It? Um, sure. It takes place over the um the first year of college of this um. <laughs> Of a college freshman whose name is Selin. She's Turkish American and she grew up in New Jersey. And it's 1995, um, so that the book is set between 95 and 96. And um, she goes off to college and she falls in love with this guy and who's uh, a few years older than her, but also a student. And he's Hungarian and um, she ends up going to Hungary over the summer to sort of like be with this guy but then she doesn't end up seeing him that much and then that's like the end of the book <laughs> <laughs> the this isn't really a a, a plotty 
novel. It's not. Um, yeah. It's an. It's sort of. I. I don't. I. I. I would maybe cringe at this uh, saying this. I'm probably going to as I say it. But it's a novel of the mind, I guess. <laughs> mm. um, and there. Th- I mean, my favorite novels or the reason why I love reading novels um, overall is because they're like this mind map of inside of one person's brain. And um, yeah, and more detail than you get with anything else. Right. And and not even like an autobiography way of just like this is just how like thoughts start to string together. And they relate to feelings. um, I know that this novel spent some time in a drawer for you. How was it like going back to that old mindset? Oh, it was really intense. It was, um, yeah, it was kind of in a drawer. It was kind of in the cloud. It was like I, I had it in, um, in FTP at um, Stanford and then, uh, and then Microsoft had OneDrive and then that changed into something else and then it was in Google Drive. Um, so I wrote it, I wrote it around um, after my first year of grad school. So when I was like 23, um, that was in 2000, 2001. Uh, and then I... I had looked at it before then, like doing um, word search, like just to look for particular sentences that I remembered, but I hadn't read the whole thing from beginning to end. Um, and the 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 first time I read it after writing it um, was many years later when I was uh, 38 in 2015. Um, I So I was writing this other novel and um, the plot was supposed to move forward in time and yet I kept having flashbacks to her like the next chapter would start and it would be like oh if you really want to know where it started it was actually here and it would go back earlier um and then at some point I found myself writing about the college years of the person who was another first person narrator of this book I was trying to write and then I was like I don't know I was in I was in the Tuscan countryside like surrounded by by pugs um, in a <laughs> farmhouse, and I was like, I just couldn't remember like what what was like if I could just recall some tactile detail, like the shape of the cafeteria trays in in 1995. Um, <laughs> and then, so I thought I would I would open this file and just look in it again. And then this time, I started reading it through from beginning to end. And yeah, I had forgotten not just the details and not just the cafeteria trays, but the whole mental state. There were so many things in it that I didn't remember feeling and um that was actually really helpful because uh i'd been doing nonfiction writing for many years and this was going to be um my first novel so it actually in the end it was helpful to um sort of start by revising something that was about someone who i didn't remember anymore because by now it felt kind of like imagining it's sort of like that Mm -hmm. borja's story where the guy is like I want to rewrite Don Quixote. So uh, I read it once long ago, but now I'm basically in the mental state of someone who hasn't written it yet since I read it that long ago. But it was kind of like that. It was like (laughs) the mental state of someone who was inventing something. Wow. That's really cool. So pugs helped. (laughs) The pugs helped. Yeah. I think that, well, the pugs, um, first it was, it was, uh, it wasn't just the pugs. I was at this wonderful fellowship that uh, Santa Madalena Foundation, um, which is run by uh, Beatrice von Rizzori, Gregor von Rizzori's, um, uh, the late Gregor von Rizzori's wife. Uh, and she has people come to their farmhouse and is incredibly generous. And uh, yeah, I felt really lucky to be there, but it was extremely disorienting. Um, but I think that it had to, I think without that complete change of surrounding, I might still have felt I don't know. I don't know how, how you guys feel, but if uh, reading something that I've written a long time ago is often intensely embarrassing, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, and somehow when you're when you're in the the trajectory of your life, the familiar trajectory of your life that you know, you you kind of cringe more, and you're trying harder to keep the embarrassing past at bay. Whereas when you go in a completely different surrounding, somehow I don't know. At least that's how it happened with me. I felt a little bit freer. And like there was sort of less at stake and it almost like it had less to do with me, mm. which was then borne out when I read it because it was about, I mean, it was about an 18 year old and it was written by a 23 year old and, and I was 38 and I was a different person. So that, yeah. yeah. As I was reading it, I was like, man, my freshman year was not terribly interesting to anybody but me. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, Salem's freshman year is like not terribly interesting to anybody but her, but this is such a compelling book. And I'm 
I'm curious, was it the distance? Was it something? How did you do it? How did you make this thing that like we all kind of go through? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Something that everybody can read and be like, wow, mine was boring, but I wanted to read the hell out of this. Yeah. Oh, that's really kind of you. I don't know. That was that was reminding me of, um, you know, Freud, like when Freud came up with the theory of the unconscious, he, he used literature so much because he was he was such a reader. And he he says something somewhere about how writers are people who take this thing that's like kind of icky, which is the ego and all of the things that it wants that to another person would be kind of disgusting. If, if you could see someone else's ego drives, you would just be like, uh, I don't, maybe I don't really care to see that. And they make that seem not only um, not disgusting, but like interesting and compelling. And he was like, how do they do that? That's this, like, if we could figure that out, that would be this huge secret. So uh, I don't know. <laughs> Um, I do think that that's, I don't know, the, the responses that I have been, that have made me particularly happy from readers have been people who have said that they had really different life experiences and yet reading about Selin's life experience made them, um, reminded them of themselves. Or one guy said that he, he went to Brown after growing up in the, and he was older than me and he had gone to Brown after growing up in the Midwest and he felt totally lost and that reading the idiot made him remember that person and feel more kindly towards him like yes. feel more gentle towards him that's really that's, nice that's definitely my because i look back on my my first year at college and i'm just like you were a total idiot and i'm mad at you and uh, <laughs> yeah exactly it's uh, shameful and upsetting and uh reading yours reading the book i i was definitely feeling a much i was like ah well and it all made sense in the moment, I guess. Well, or, yeah, or it actually didn't make sense. And that was why, like, college scrambles your brain. Like, you yeah. you were, like, high school, you learn the ins and outs of it. It, it can still be challenging at the end, but it's, it's a, you've figured out how to master it in some way. Or at least you've figured out how you're going to muddle your way through. And then college is not like that at all. And it, it, it threw me for a loop. And it was... Uh, it's it almost was, like we were saying your save file is deleted because you get to the top of you're like working your way up like do 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 high school uh, elementary school and you get to the end and then you work through middle school and then you get to high school and you're all the way at the top and you think you've completely figured it out and then it's almost like none of that counts or like yeah. the things that you thought were going to count don't count. It was a it was such a great picture of a mind being scrambled. Like mm-hmm. she was she kept thinking she was going to find greater meaning. Yeah. And then she kept being disappointed by that. Yeah. By that, <laughs> by that search, which I, um, I also really, um, connected with. Um, I, I'm predisposed toward, I love campus novels. Um, but one of the things I really love in a campus novel is that it uses like the year of school to, uh, you know, like the the beginning of school. So like you've got new friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you structure the plot and like, then there's problems with your friends and then do you keep these friends at the end of the school year? Um, but you sort of flaunted that convention of, of how the, the novel would work. I mean, did, were you, did you feel like you were in conversation with other campus novels while you were writing it or... You know, I felt like I was in conversation with campus novels when I was revising it, not so much when I was writing it, because when I was writing it, I had, you know, then I'd I'd just gone to the next, I just started graduate school, which was like another climbing through school. So basically, my whole life had been school at that point. And I just thought I was writing about life. It didn't occur to me that I was writing about Hmm. any like campus or education, or I just wasn't thinking of it that way. And then, and you know, part of the reason that I, I didn't finish it when I started it was... I didn't know what the beginning was. I didn't know what the end was. It had it. It didn't have the structure that the idiot has now. It had a lot of um, flashbacks and flash forwards, and I just didn't. I didn't see what the book was, and um, and then I I broke my elbow, and I didn't have health insurance, and so I I went back to school and had this great insurance, and got really you know learned a lot about literature and start became a nonfiction writer, but um, when I went back and I revised it. Then I saw, actually, I saw a bunch of things. One thing that I saw was that um, the experiences that, to me, at that time, I had thought were very unique and strange and didn't translate to other people's experiences had a kind of universal feeling about them that I didn't recognize at the time. 
And also it when I looked at it, I saw that it was a campus novel and it could be that the easiest way to structure it would be with the calendar year of starting in September of the freshman year and then ending at the end of summer vacation the next summer. And um, definitely it doesn't follow all of the rules of the campus novel. It kind of departs from that form, but it's almost like that form was the thing that it could then depart from. Like if you don't have any form for it to even depart from, then it can just be this like long list of things that don't make sense. (laughs) And I, so I was thinking, um, I was thinking about other campus novels that, that I had read and that I liked. And particularly in the first half of the book, I was, I, I kind of think of it like the first half of the book is the first half of a campus novel. And then the second half, it just kind of, goes awry well and it leaves campus yeah so. it leaves campus yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that would that would definitely do it when it moved to hungary i was i was a little disappointed because i highly well, not by actually what occurred there but i really loved um Salen's relationship with her mother uh-huh. and i really wanted her to show up uh-huh. i was like when when we moved to hungary i was like oh it's definitely not gonna happen now <laughs> like I, oh <laughs> i wanted i wanted some like actual one-on-one like in-person time with um and I guess you get a little at the end. You get a little. Yeah. Um, but that was actually one of my editors um, comments that the, the mother was there even less in the in the first draft. And she was like, put some more of your mother in the beginning. Wow. I've heard, I don't know if this is true, uh, that there's a sequel of yeah. just sophomore year. Or is yeah. this true? <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of um yeah, it's kind of embarrassing to put it that way that the sequel is sophomore year. But yeah, that's that's basically the truth. Um a friend of mine was joking that, you know, in later years people, you know, you can talk about Elif Batuman's college tetralogy after <laughs> volume three. People will be in a lot of suspense for volume four to see does she actually graduate? <laughs> so I, I don't wanna um when I when I switched working from the novel that I had been working on about the person in her thirties to this college flashback novel. I did think of it as a prequel and I thought that I might like to write a series of novels or that I might like the novels that I thought of writing to actually be connected and to be about the same person. And it actually seemed to me that the person Celine in the book that became the idiot was the same person in the later book that I was working on just at an earlier stage. Um, so then I was excited to write a sequel, although I, I couldn't quite get to the thirties from, um, (laughs) from age 19 or whatever she is at the end. And then, uh, I just started writing what happens when she goes back to school that fall. And I haven't written the book yet. I just wrote kind of like a, a summary, but, um, I wrote like 30 pages, um, it's kind of enough for it. like to me it feels like it's enough for another book even though it's just another calendar year but i'm hoping first of all if that's the case it definitely won't be 400 pages it'll be shorter and i'm actually hoping that it'll it'll go a little faster and i can get more than one year into the next sequel because otherwise if it's just i'm writing at the same pace as life like i'm gonna die and she's gonna be like <laughs> barely in her oral exams at graduate school <laughs> um i was curious um the novel's called The Idiot. It's it's sort of um, it's connected just because of your background. You've written about Russian literature, and you um, recommended reading uh, The Idiot for this podcast. Um, and we chose the other difficult book. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was curious if there's like sort of um, some parallels that are like that you know of that you were like that that other maybe Dostoevsky heads will will get down with. Oh yeah. Um, so the, the immediate place that the title of the idiot came from was that first novel that I was working on. It was also really autobiographical and it was about, um, a Turkish American writer for a New Yorker like publication living in Istanbul, which is where I was living then and writing about Turkey. And she was the author of this idiosyncratic collection of humorous interconnected essays about Russian literature, um, just like I am. In in my case, the book is called The Possessed, but in the novel, I wanted to change its name. So I called it The Idiot. I just thought that would be funny. And then um, I, I got... I don't know. It was very endearing to me to think of somebody writing kind of an autobiographical book called The Idiot. And um, (laughs) that idea sort of stayed with me. So then when I was revising this draft, when I was looking at it, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about with, um, with 
shame and learning to not feel that and to look at to look at the past kind of as a science experiment like oh that's what would happen if you put that person with that background into that situation and there's like maybe the things are embarrassing but there's not actually anything to be ashamed of which actually now that I'm talking about it seems like a very Dostoevskyan theme sort of the science experiment of like depositing people in these more or less <laughs> shameful circumstances but anyway when I was when I was revising it I realized that at the time I'd written it I'd taken a lot of pains to prove that I the person who was writing the book was smarter than the person whose whose experiences were being written about and um, I I put a lot of distance there I had you know there were sentences in it that were like oh you know when we're young we're so foolish and then we we grow up and we become wiser and we learn all these things and when in the revision I realized that all of those interpolations of the older narrator were kind of distracting and annoying and nobody wants to hear about how wise and smart someone is and actually (laughs) the parts that were really immediate to me were the embarrassing um really vulnerable parts that had this mindset that I'd forgotten about, about being that open and that receptive to the world and that kind of easily flummoxed and, and basically hurt. And anyway, that's when I thought I would call it the idiot. And so at, at that point, I didn't think of it having that much to do with Dostoevsky. But then, um, then the book came out and, um, and people would ask, so what's the relationship with Dostoevsky? And I was like, oh, there's no relationship at all. And then I realized that that sounds super disingenuous because I've written like a total of two books and they both have titles from Dostoevsky. Although also in The Possessed, I talk about how um, like Russianists tend to, for better or worse, divide themselves into the Tolstoy camp and the Dostoevsky camp. And I always kind of identified with the Tolstoy camp more, which is, which is true. Um, and there's a passage in The Idiot where Céline and uh, and the guy she likes, uh, Ivan, are talking about Dostoevsky, and he really likes Dostoevsky, and she's like, yeah, not really my jam. And I, I do think of myself as being that person for whom Dostoevsky isn't the person, but but maybe that's not true. Like, I've just been starting to wonder if maybe that's not true. And then that made me start to think about um, Nabokov, because, you know, if you read Nabokov's lectures on Russian literature, all he does is talk smack about Dostoevsky. He has nothing, <laughs> nothing good to say about Dostoevsky at all. But then if you look at Dostoevsky, if you look at Nabokov's actual work, you can see that Dostoevsky was a huge influence on him, that he read all of these books. There's signs of them everywhere. They clearly really meant something to him. Like they didn't, maybe he didn't unambiguously love them, but they were really important to him. So then I thought, oh, so there's this group of people in the world to which I belong for whom, uh, Dostoevsky is much more important than they think it is. And in fact, they think Dostoevsky doesn't matter at all, but clearly he really does. And why would that be? And then I thought, what could be more Dostoevsky than that? It's like, <laughs> oh, I hate it. No, I love it. So I, I, yeah, I do think that there's... And when I thought about the, the plot of the idiot, I of Dostoevsky's idiot, there are certain similarities. It's about this kind of young, sort of naive guy who really wants to live life in the right way. And he comes to a new place. He's been in Switzerland and he he arrives in Russia and he makes these friends his own age and he immediately falls in love with the single least appropriate person. And then he pursues her in this very inefficient way, you know, running here and there and spending all of this money. And like there's some, it's not like there's no relationship but I don't know how much I was thinking about that at the time Hmm. one thing that I really love about this show and the way that we do this thing when we ask authors to like recommend a book is that almost inevitably I'm reading the two books very close to each other so they very much feel in conversation and as I dove into Swan's Way uh, a quote from your book came back to me um, at one point about midway through the book. They're all at the airport. Um, and Svetlana says, Robin, you're the only person in the world who would have such a ridiculous idea that beauty makes you forget about love. And I was like, well, if that's not Proust, what is? <laughs> and I like, I just, that quote kept reverberating in my head. Um, yeah, is that is that your idea of Proust? Is is that this is that Proust is a thesis statement? It was a little bit for me in this experience. I'm sure we're going to talk a lot more, but like 
the beauty where you didn't necessarily love, I think is the slight caveat for me. Like there were moments where I did, mm-hmm. there were moments where I didn't, but the whole time I was like, God, this is just beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, and we should say we're talking about Marcel Proust's uh, In Search of Lost Time. Volume one. Volume one. Swan's Way. Swan's Way. But maybe you could talk about why you wanted to bring this particular one other than we chose it out of the two. Um, why bring this one to us? Oh, well, actually, at the time that I went back and um, revised The Idiot um, in 2015, uh, I started rereading In Search of Lost Time, which I read as a graduate student um, in a class when they, you know, we had weekly assignments and uh, it was all very, we read the whole thing and, and uh, I don't know, 12 weeks or something and so there was a certain amount of skipping was involved and so I thought okay I'm going to take the time and I'm going to do it right and uh I'm still now in the middle of I'm by now I've gotten it's 2017 and I've gotten to volume five now um so uh so when you asked for a book recommendation that was the book that I was in the middle of but um and then I thought that maybe we could all read volume 5 together but then I started reading volume 5 and I realized it wasn't going to make sense and then I remembered that um not only is it fun to start with volume 1 but also volume 1 is the only one that's been translated by Lydia Davis who's such a wonderful writer and yeah. I I love her translation I think it just brings out the kind of obsessive logic game almost like computer programming nature of Proust where he's like if this of which this is a subset of that happened to be like that then we could have said that it was this other thing whereas if you read the other translation the the older one it's um it's much more flowery there's um I don't know there's less word repetition it's um then the Davis translation which feels more accurate to me like I think that part of the reason he called it um I mean, it's in search of lost time, but in French, the word is recherche, which is like research. And I think he really thought of it as like a systematic program of research into, you can see it in the scene with the Madeleine where he, he tastes a tiny piece of it and he feels something and then he, he tastes some more so he can feel it more. And then he tastes it again and then he feels less than he did the second time. And he's like, okay, I can't waste this. I have to like go back and remember what's the thing that I'm trying to remember. Then he's like, that doesn't work. So I'm going to try thinking about something else. And then I'm going to go back and do it again. Like there's really this sense that there's this difficult mission that he's trying to figure out, which is something about time and specifically about like, lost time which in french also it's uh it's not just lost it's also wasted like there's a a sense that in the like the first four he's just like constantly wasting his time he's talking to all of these losers he's like going to all (laughs) of these parties that are like just absurd and 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 boring and he's uh going on these rabbit into these rabbit holes of sexual jealousy and then you know three months later he thinks back and realizes I don't even care about that person anymore. Like what was that all about? And the whole thing just becomes this huge experiment into the nature of like psychology and, and what it is to be alive and how you remember the past. Um, which I feel like that comes out more in the Lydia Davis translation. And that was, um, I guess Proust was important for me when I was writing the idiot, Uh, both in the sense that I was thinking that what I was writing was a prequel to something later. And that's something that, um, speaking of dissertations, actually, I'm going to take another. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I did, uh, Proust, Proust was in my dissertation and I did think a lot about the relationship between the first volume and the last volume time regained where he, um, realizes everything, uh, mind blowing. That's a mind blowing book. Uh, but, um, Oh, that sip of dissertation just totally threw me into a tiz. (laughs) Oh, uh, so when I, when I was revising the idiot, I was thinking about, um, the relationship between the way Proust was able to write all of these books that are so different over a long period of time, but they're all in a conversation with each other. And also another thing that I was thinking about was how um, those books really aren't, the Proust books are not about plot, but something keeps you reading them anyway. And there's a kind of almost, it's almost like, like instead of melody, it's harmony. Like it's a layering of different Mm. things instead Mm. of like a train that you follow. Um, and that was something that I was thinking about also as I was, as I was working on the idiot.
it is it's a it's a singular reading experience um that i was resistant to when i first was oh me too diving in yeah. it was it was i hate childhood i don't want to hear about it <laughs> <laughs> um and this childhood i mean he's he's so you know he wants his mother's attention at the beat and and actually so spoiled <laughs> i i had this um i had this funny experience where i was reading the beginning of the book and um i i was i thought i was like uncovering like some sort of um like a literature myth that there were that the madeline thing was actually like not in this and like <laughs> maybe, maybe it was going to come much later because i i I had somehow believed in in before ever reading this book that that's where it starts is with I mean, the the eating of the Madeline. It does. Like, maybe there's like fifty the, pages before. Well, what's what's fifty pages compared to the next like one thousand five hundred? I yeah. understand that now, but when I was starting <laughs> to read the book, and it is a little slow at the beginning yeah. because you're really having to read. You know, you're having to learn how to read the book. Exactly. Um, yeah. Um, and it's very much about like trying to figure out. A, like how do I fall asleep and what is a room like? And yeah. I was like, wow, I guess, I guess that Madeline thing is just like not in this at all. <laughs> and then when it showed up, I was relieved. I was like, Oh good. Okay. <laughs> so I, 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 I didn't um, stumble. So funny. On, it's like you land on. in Paris and like, you don't see the Eiffel tower and you're like, this is so it must not be here. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. a relief when you turn around and you're like, Oh, oh there, there it is. is. <laughs> it's exactly yeah. like that. <laughs> I felt like I wish I didn't have to have read it so quickly. Um, Me I, too. I yeah. I definitely feel like the book suffers from like I have to read seventy five pages today. Yeah, um, for sure. I say this to Drew sometimes that a book has a truffle problem, mm -hmm. where um, you just really want to eat one, and that was and that was really good, and that's all you wanted of that. Mm -hmm. um, and this book is very rich, and mm -hmm. um, if if you read too much of it at once, it's just like this doesn't this is nothing. This is just words. Although I found um, kind of wonderful, and I am one of those people who like sticks with a book to the bitter end and has to wants to read every word and like go through the thing. I found that, and it might be, be partially because of the translation, um, partially because every once in a while I would pull up the original French, and I would just sort of try to read it in French and pick out enough of a sentence that I was like, oh, I just understood that sentence in French. Great. But I'd be sitting there and I'd be reading and I would just sort of like glide along and then I would drop down under the surface. There were moments where it really and all of a sudden I was getting every single word and I felt and then I'd come back up. But I didn't I didn't feel the thing that I usually feel when that happens where I'm like, man, I am skimming right now or I'm just like I'm not getting it. Instead, I, I just felt buoyant yeah in a it, way that was really lovely it felt like skimming was an okay thing to do sometimes it sounds like the writing of this was a, also a curse for him like it just ended up like he, he started end of his life he was just retreating from society in an apartment trying to finish this before he before would he die died, yeah. because he was sick and yeah just, and yeah. so like yeah it's um it's really interesting to me that this this thing which is so beautiful and has stood the test of time um what killed him i mean in in some way i mean that's not exact but or it kept him alive or that's why he lasted that long and the minute he finished it he died because you see that happening like cervantes died right after he finished the second book of don quixote i think a lot of the time there's a relationship between this was like i wrote about this a little in my dissertation that there's a relationship between um living and then processing that in writing and then that is something that sustains life and then then when it's over, just the person kind of checks out. The, the sort of interesting thing, too, is that like a lot of this first volume is about someone else it's about swan yeah it's about yeah. his next door neighbor for no reason and then like <laughs> at the end the next door neighbor turns out to have been like the main character in the story of his life it's completely crazy uh, and i was worried um i think I think because I've read the Patrick Melrose novels, um, uh, I, I guess, and and I don't know, I, I guess when someone's <laughs> I thought talking, this was going to take a dark turn. I thought it was going to take a dark turn. Where the dad comes upstairs and he's like terrified of the dad. I was like, yeah. 
uh-uh, uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, I, I kept thinking of really, really dark turns that this was going to take. And then being surprised, like, again, like, there's so much scholarship around these books that I hadn't heard about these dark uh, turns. But they they really played up the Madeline and played down the whole pedophilia. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> What what does re- what what is returning to the book find finding for you? Oh, I, I mean, I I looked at volume one again. So this is now like the, I guess the third or the fourth time. I and I I don't know. It seems completely different every time. There's and there's only so many times you can because I also find it tough going and I I find it so moving and so smart and I keep get reading these descriptions of things and it's like oh my god how did he ever put that thing into words and yet it's not a book that I feel like that I you know feel like reading every day <laughs> I also feel like it messes with my writing that there are some writers who have very particular styles um, I feel like that with Henry James. I feel like that with Nabokov. And definitely I feel like that with Proust, where if I'm trying to write something, I feel it less with the Lydia Davis translation, but um, I do feel like my sentences start to get really long. So I um, so I do have to kind of like keep it at arm's length, but then uh, it was really fun to go back to it just before talking to you guys. I guess the one thing that I noticed that I hadn't really thought of before was the first time he reads a novel, like when his mother reads him that George Sand novel that his grandmother got him, Francois Le Champy. And it's just like what you were saying, where he doesn't understand the affair. She's leaving out all of the the love scenes. The mother's like censoring it as she's reading it to him. So he's, but for all he knows, that's just what books are like. Like he's (laughs) like, one thing happens after another and it doesn't really make sense. And all of the things that are unexplained are for him summed up in that name, Francois Le Champy, which doesn't mean anything. It's just the name of the character. And I thought just of how true that is to how kids think and like how how did he remember that? It's so it's so amazing. You can't help but think of your own memory while you're reading yeah, this. Yeah. Um, but it's just like the joy of finding a door in your memory that led to something that you thought was lost to you forever. Mm-hmm. It's just like, no, I actually contained this. Yeah. Still, and and found a way to get there. It, oh, the, it, that me- that metaphor is sick where he's like, actually, I remembered the sobbing the way I sobbed. And actually, I had never stopped hearing it. But it was like the bells of this convent that when they ring in the morning, you hear them and then you think that they stopped. But actually, at night, when the noises stop, you realize they were ringing the whole day. It's like baller. Yeah, it's really. I mean, yeah. And he also does a he gives a great um lecture on why how why it's great to read novels too and how great it is to lose yourself in a novel mm-hmm. yeah. um and those little stretches are just fantastic but it's it, it can be work to get there mm-hmm. it is work to get there um but then you come across you know the <laughs> some monocle styling um criticism um that was one of my favorite parts was like three or four pages of going over like the monocles at this party that he was at (laughs) it's like this guy had a monocle and let me tell you about it for a while uh which was really interesting because i didn't uh i didn't know that they were some of them they're held in place some of them they're held in place by the how they wire around their heads it was uh it was a question that i've always wondered the more you know yeah Mm-hmm. about monocles and, and well you know <laughs> yeah and that's probably something that everyone then knew and now we yeah don't know it anymore. yeah I, i'm glad to have had like this sort of i guess assignment motivation um, okay, cool. to, thank to you, go thank down you and, for and reading read, it read i know it was a, it was uh, it a was, commitment I it was a it. commitment but it was like a, a welcome one i was very glad to to finally pull that off yeah of i was the, really excited Oh, that's um, cool. So thanks for bringing that along. Oh, thank you for joining me on the journey of Swan's Way. <laughs> yeah. I, now we've gone in search of lost time and lost yeah. some time. So good. I'm look, someday, someday more. time will be regained. Why don't we uh, talk about uh, recommendations? Why don't we recommend some books now? Oh. Do you want to do that? Yeah, okay. Okay. Do you want to go first? Yeah, I can go first. 
So after Proust, uh, I decided I needed a little bit of a break. I decided to read some comics. And I actually found this manga uh, called Orange um, by Ichigo Takano. Um, and I read volume one. And it's about this girl who um, she's going into 11th grade and she gets a letter from herself 10 years in the future. And, and the letter says, I have some regrets. I don't want you to have those same regrets. What? Um, and so she starts to change things. And, and as she's doing them, she's like, oh, no, I'm changing things for my future self. Like her life is completely different. And then she, they actually solve that time slip problem hmm. uh, in this, which was awesome. Cool. Um, I, I highly recommend this weird, um, this very weird manga. It's, it's totally enjoyable. Um, and I finished volume one and it's a huge, enormous, crazy cliffhanger at the end of volume one. And I'm totally, I already got the volume two from the library. So I'm in it and I recommend it to you all as a really cool, weird science fiction, but really more of a relationship comic. Uh, Drew, do you want to talk about what you recommend? Sure. I'm going to go in the other direction and pick something else that is um, nearly as as sumptuous and beautiful and dense as the Proust. Okay. Um, I think I've recommended the first volume in the past, but Lawrence Durrell's Alexandria Quartet, which is just, it is one of my favorite reading experiences of all time. Uh, And actually when I finished reading Swan's Way at the end of last week, I went and pulled Justine, which is the first volume, off my shelf and just started flipping back through and finding the pages that I had tabbed down and just reading mm-hmm. sentences. It is um, it's just after uh, it's just after the war in Alexandria, mm-hmm. and it's it's love affairs. It, the British are there. Um, it is just this sweeping portrait of a city of people. Uh, and each novel sort of tells the story from a different point of view. So the first one is this guy who's in love with this woman, Justine, and he tells this story and he's like, this is my story. And at the very end, this is not really a spoiler, at the very end, this other character, Balthazar, shows up and is like, buddy, none of what you think happened is how it actually happened. And the second novel is Balthazar sort of correcting the narrative. Oh, wow. The third novel is like this British guy who shows up halfway through the first novel Mm. being like, and here's how I experienced it. And then the fourth novel is sort of like five years later, a conclusion. Oh, wow. And it's just cool. It like, it takes an investment in the same way. It took me the first time I read it. And I even then was reading pretty fast. I think it took me a month to read all four books. Mm. Uh, but I've never experienced anything like it. Wow. Aleph? Um, well, the last time I bought physical books was a couple, a week or two ago. I went to the Strand and the books that I bought, uh, neither of which I have regretted for one tiny microsecond of time, were uh, one was a one of those editions of Peanuts from um, 1977. And I'd been reading the Peanuts from the earlier years and uh, I was born in 1977. And it, it was just interesting to see. It, it's crazy how the character of Snoopy changes. Oh. Like the the January of 1977, it opens with this New Year comic where Snoopy's like lying on the doghouse and Charlie Brown comes and he's like, oh, you must have had a good time last night I didn't see you come in or like you've been sleeping all day and Snoopy's like I had a terrible night I drank too much root beer I didn't fall in love I feel like I'm 30 years older than I was yesterday it was just such a different Snoopy than you wow. used to see before oh, especially yeah from those fi- the 50s Snoopy was much yeah. more of just a regular was dog, a dog. Yeah. yeah yeah who's like yeah he's offended by the use of the word dog and um <laughs> Yeah, it's wonderful. And and Woodstock is very strange. Like you're like what's the deal with Woodstock? I don't know, reading them as a as an adult, I I remember reading them as a child and and I don't know. Now it just seems like there's so much more going on. Um so that's been been really rewarding. And then also I got this uh little book that's by um Seneca, the Stoic philosopher called On the Shortness of Life and uh it's about how you think life is really short, I guess, to go along with the Proustian <laughs> and the Snoopy New Year <laughs> theme. Um, 
it's you think life is really short, but it's because you're living it not in a mindful way. And then he lists all of the different ways that that people that like, you know, ancient Romans waste their time. And he's like, you know, there are these guys who like, all they do is cut their hair, they're constantly cutting their hair and thinking about how their hair looks and asking people how their hair looks. Is that life? Are they living? Do you call this life? And he's just like holding up these different examples. And then he's like, when people are complaining that life is short, it's because they're like, they're doing it in this wrong way. And if you live in a mindful way, and you think about what's going on, life is actually extremely long. And uh, I do think that's kind of a fun um, mind game to play, which is like, if you look at life as being short, it does seem very short. And if you look at it as being long, it's very long. And then you can kind of go back and forth like short, long. Short. <laughs> so that's what I'm up to. <laughs> I guess uh, some days, sometimes you're living life as 1950s Snoopy. Yeah, sometimes it's true. Sometimes it's 1970s Snoopy. It's true. <laughs> uh, his lines are so much different in the 50s. Yeah. Anyway, I have a lot of thoughts on Schultz. Yeah. What an amazing guy. Yeah. Totally. And Seneca too, I guess. Yeah. That's a fun pairing. I did like Snoopy, that. Did Snoopy kill Schultz the way <laughs> I mean, In Search of Lost Time killed Proust? I think that, um, I think he was writing his comic until like a week before he died. Yeah. yeah. But I guess it's not like finished in the same way that a book is finished. No. Yeah. He always said um, he would be done when um, he made his way all the way through his writing desk. If you ever, his, his like drawing desk. Mm. If you ever look at pictures of his drawing desk, there was like a big circle of like where he really drew the comic. Huh. So it really like was worn through more and more. And he's like, as soon as I go all the way wow. through, I'm done. <laughs> uh, and he never They look never so light. That. The lines look so light. Yeah. I guess yeah. that's deceptive. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, oh, thank thanks you. For this was really so fun. fun. Um, and people go out there and maybe go to patreon.com slash smdb and uh, spend some money on us if you want to. We do cool things if you do. Um, and also, if you don't want to do that, you could leave us an iTunes review. That's always nice. And if you don't want to do that, then that's you know, fine too. Share the show with your friends. Or just listen to it and turn it off and go back to your life yeah all of that is a totally legitimate way to enjoy our show go back to your book oh hey yeah go read you know walk to class in front of ya spill kefir on your kefir you look inside and turn to the dog drag your feet along the floor then I see you you walk across the campus cool professor studying romances I do know that they've tried to bring Monocles back a couple wow. times. Wow. Well, I remember the New York Times at some point, like there was a certain bar that things had to qualify for for it to be a trend. And that's now two. So if you find just two people with Monocles, that's like a trend that you can. Oh, that's enough. Yeah. That's oh. really interesting. Yeah. So monocles, then by that standard, it is definitely is, a trend. Yeah. We can walk outside right now and just be like, uh, you, you, you're going to be able to find two people wearing Monocles walking outside right now. <laughs> we walk towards Prospect Park. That could be your next podcast. In the afternoon.